reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that that truth of the statement that Mary just said, that your mercy is from generation to generation. And each of us knows that in here. God, you have been so merciful to us. We pray now that you would turn our hearts and our minds to the study and the proclamation of your word. And may we leave here a changed people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How are you all doing today? Feeling festive? Yes? Yes, you look festive. We are primarily today going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And what I love about Mary's song is if you take that song and you put it right next to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, they run parallel. In terms of the themes, you could just draw lines straight from Hannah's song to Mary's song, except Mary's song is the fulfillment of Uh, a song that we're going to look at today, a song that is looking forward to God bringing the Messiah. Uh, And here in Luke chapter 1 is the fulfillment of it. We're going to sort of rewind the tape here. We're going to go back to the end of the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends with the world descending into violence and chaos. The book concludes with a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what seemed right to them, which is a super sad statement. And it turns out that that also is the epitaph of every culture in this world that dies. There is no king in Israel, and there is no king, no sovereign king in heaven that we've invited to come rule in our lives, and so people just do what seems right in their own eyes. And so at this point, Israel is rudderless. They're adrift in immorality and idolatry. And God has to begin a new era by sending a Moses-like leader. And this is little Samuel. Little Samuel grows up to be big Samuel. And when he does, he is the prototype for several things in Israel's history. The first one is the prophetic office. He becomes the new prototype of a future prophet. But he also looks a lot and functions a lot like Moses did in the nation. Both Moses and Samuel uh, embody three offices of Israel. The prophet, the priest, and the king. They do all of those functions. And now he is going to be a prototype for a future David, and then a future David-eyed Jesus, who is the king who reigns supreme. And so the story of Samuel, though, begins quietly and humbly. It begins in the faithful prayer of a, of a woman who wants to be a mom. And so uh, she is married to a man named Elkanah, or Elkanah, and he has two wives. We pick up the story, Penina and ha- uh, Hannah. Penina has many children, whereas Hannah doesn't have any. And the message of this story is very simply, 
it runs in two directions, on two tracks here. The first one is that the key to a life of sustained joy in the midst of changing circumstances is to reaffirm our faith, to stand firm in our faith, and to seek the presence of the Lord when we face things that threaten to steal our joy. It also introduces God's solution to this human dilemma. People are without this sovereign king, and God is going to send a sovereign anointed son. First Samuel chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 says this, when Elkanah offered a sacrifice, so we go down to Shiloh, and he would offer these sacrifices three times a year, and he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to each of her sons and daughters, but he gave a double portion to Hannah. So he's trying to fatten her up, you see? Uh, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. And her rival, that is Penina, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Now, Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying, her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you so troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Wow. Wow when you just don't know what to say, <laughs> say exactly the wrong thing, right? <laughs> so let's make some observations from this timeless story relative to how we sustain joy in life. Number one, in a difficult situation, Hannah despaired. So if you're following along with your outline in the bulletin, this is blank number one, in a difficult situation, Hannah despaired. Well, why do we start here? Why don't we start at the end of the story where she was victorious? Because we need to understand the depth of her heartache. We need to understand the depth of her anguish. As is the case in most biblical narratives, what we're experiencing here is what we call literary compression. So you know that this story and many others in the Bible have been compressed in literary form. You are just getting the gist of the story. You are getting the most surface level understanding of the story. There are so many more details, so many more moving parts, so many emotions and things going on that are wrapped up into the story. And so it is likely that her season of despair over childlessness, it is likely a prolonged thing going on in her life. She would have been married around the age of 12 or 13, uh, and by the time they started uh, trying to have kids, it became apparent to Elkanah and to her that they could not have kids, so then he takes another wife, Penina. She starts having children left and right, and so they know it's Hannah. It's not Elkanah. He's not the one who is sterile here. And so her season of suffering was likely prolonged. And we get a sense in the story that something's got to give. Something has to change. This woman is despairing and crying out to the Lord. And so what are the sources of those things? Well, first of all, obviously, she was infertile. But you have to understand that she is infertile in an inhospitable world. She is barren, can't have children, but in a context, in a cultural context that is very inhospitable uh, and very antagonistic toward women who cannot have children. In this society, it is what we call a patrilineal world. What is a patrilineal world? Well, it is patriarchal. It is patriarchal, but it's much worse than just being patriarchal. It's patrilineal, which means you cannot inherit property if you're the second or third or fourth born child. 
you can only inherit property if you're the firstborn and if you're a male. So women can't inherit property. Most of the time, they cannot inherit property. Most of the time, uh, they cannot own land, actually. They can't, uh, like, work them, go to Walmart, work, the, like, two shifts, and save some money and go buy a plot of land and then work that land. They're not allowed to do this in this ancient Near Eastern culture. So in this world, the woman's social role is to have children and, more specifically, to have heirs, especially for the wealthy, and Elkanah is wealthy. And so we see that she is infertile in a very inhospitable environment. If women can't have children, what good are they? And that's how these people in this ancient Near Eastern context looked at them. And she also has a natural desire for children. She just has a normal, natural, metabolic urge to bring children into the world because they are a joy most of the time, right? (laughs) Yes, they are. And the other problem here is that it's not just that she's barren in a very hostile world toward barren women. It's that she shared a husband with a spiteful rival. So she is sharing a marriage bed with a woman who isn't, like, encouraging. Penina is not like, oh, can we, let's pray today. Let's pray together. Let's do devotions. No. Elkanah is, tor- or uh, Penina is tormenting her rival, Hannah, and she is spiteful, says, and her rival used to provoke her grievously in order to irritate her. And so in the ancient world, polygamy uh, was very, very well regulated. So in any society, whether you were in Babylonia or whether you were in Assyria or Anatolia, they had, you can check, they had a lot of laws that regulated this practice. If you were not a wealthy man, you could not have two wives because you, you could only afford one. I know for me, I can only afford one, right? <laughs> so in this culture, if you did not have the wealth, if you did not have the means to sustain two wives or three or four or a harem, you couldn't do that. And so, but this was a practice for people at the upper echelons in the aristocracy. Uh, they could take on a second wife, particularly if the first wife was found to be childless. This was allowed so that this landowner, this wealthy landowner, could pass, again, his, uh, his estate onto his progeny. And so polygamy was tolerated in the earliest biblical text. And once in a while I get a, a question about that. Why does the Old Testament tolerate it and the New Testament seems not to? And it's because God allowed the human race to propagate Otherwise, we would have never made it out of the garden. There would only have ever been Adam and Eve. And so God allowed the human race to intermarry to a certain point. But there's a point in history where God looks at the gene pool and says, ah, that's probably not going to be good to sustain genetic viability. So what God does is he puts the kibosh on that. He says, no more. And we say, well, why did he change? Because God can change his, his mind if he wants to. And here's what you need to know. God's last word on any matter is his most relevant one. God's last word on any matter is his most relevant one. Why don't we sacrifice bulls and goats on altars today? Because God's last word on that matter is Jesus Christ on the cross. So so on this matter, what God has said is that it's one man, one woman for life. That's the gold standard. Jesus has this discussion in Matthew 22 when the religious leaders come up to him. And they want to ask him about the law of Moses' certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, okay, he gave you that concession, 
because you're evil. <laughs> okay? But that's not God's standard. God's gold standard is Adam and Eve. Go back to the garden. One man, one woman for life, if possible. Right? So that's God's standard. And, and Hannah is being taunted and tormented by a woman who is married to her husband also. Can you imagine the social stuff going on in the house to make this a very difficult, a very difficult situation? And she also reminds us of who God is. Verses 3 and 11, I love these passages because they are the first occurrence in the Old Testament of the name Yahweh Sebaot. The name Yahweh Sebaot means the Lord of armies. It's sometimes translated the Lord of hosts. It means the God who does battle. The God who goes to war. The warrior God. And so in verse 3, he's called the Lord of hosts. In verse 11, in her prayer, she refers to him in her vow as the Lord of armies. The, the God of war. And so 265 times in the Old Testament, you see this term being used. And it starts right here. Later, when David will face Goliath, this is the name that God uh, is called by David. Remember that story? You have this big guy. He's like nine feet tall. I don't know how tall the guy is, but he's huge. And you have little David. And ancient Jews, we know, were short. So he's all of five feet tall, maybe four and a half feet tall to five feet tall. And he comes out with his little sling and what, and, and what does Goliath do? He starts laughing at him. He starts taunting him. You little shepherd boy come at me with a sling? And what is David's response? David is like, you are crazy. You come at me, the largest man on the planet, the most powerful warrior in all of Philistia, with a mere sword and a spear and a javelin? Brother, you brought a sword to a god fight. <laughs> you brought a javelin against Yahweh Sebaot, against the God of war, the God who does battle for my people. And so Hannah knows who God is. She knows who God is. She knows that he is the God who does battle for her in the unseen realm. And she reminds us of it. Number two, the second thing we note from the story is that despite her circumstances, Hannah remained devoted to God. This, of course, is the Sunday school flannel graph answer. <laughs> right? Yeah, we all want to remain devoted to God in, despite our circumstances. But now we know the depth of her anguish. We know the depth of her social situation and how difficult it actually is. Her uncommon devotion is a key feature of this account, notwithstanding the fact that she feels abandoned, she's being taunted by her domestic rival. The men in the story just keep saying dumb things, as we often do. Look at verses 9 through 14. It says, on one occasion, Hannah got up and uh, after they ate and drank at Shiloh. So they are down there for a feast. That's the context. They are there to celebrate a feast to the Lord, to God. And this is the priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord. And she wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, Yahweh Sebaot, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. And while she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. 
And so this is the priest of the temple, and Hannah was praying kind of under her breath, just silently. And though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was hammered. He, th- he thought she was drunk. And he said to her, her, how long are you going to be drunk, lady? Get rid of your wine. Now, are you getting the sense that the men in the story always just say the wrong thing? (laughs) And sometimes we do that, don't we? I I kind of sympathize with him because I've done this. Sometimes when my wife is hurting and something is really, she's really wrestling through something, and I just want to fix it. Don't you want to fix it? You guys are like, yes, we want to fix it. And so I just start, I just start, uh, suggesting lots of things to do to fix it. I, this happened to me one time. Uh, it was when Carrie was going through her cancer, and we went through that pretty intensely there, about a year or so, between a year and a year and a half. And uh, most of the time, I will tell you this, I would get up and preach on a Sunday morning and go back to my office, and most days there would be a card or a stack of cards of encouragement from people, just people, folks, this congregation sustained Carrie and I through that period. That, that kept me in the pulpit, to be perfectly honest with you. And one day, uh, it was during the greeting time, a guy that was standing in front of me turned around and he had written a, a note to me. And he handed it to me and he grabbed my hand and he said, I wrote this for you, brother. I was like, thank you, brother. I stuck it in my back pocket. I went back to my office after I preached the second service. And when I opened the note, it was not encouraging. It was excoriating. I mean, he lit me up for all the ways in which I was not serving my wife. Now, you need to know, you can ask her, this is true, ask the kids. When she was going through this, I made a ton. I got up in the morning and made a ton of really bad lunches. Because I don't do it as well as she does. But I did my best. And I was there for the kids. And I wept with them, and I prayed with them, and I was here in this pulpit. And essentially what the note said is, man, you got to step it up here. You're, not, you're just not doing your best. I'll be praying for you. Yeah, thank you for the prayer. And so let me tell you, I, that shredded me. That crushed me. And sometimes, and I could tell that the heart behind it was good. It was actually a good motivation. Listen, when people are in the throes of pain, will you do me a favor, write this down, delay your advice. <laughs> Can you just delay it? If you think, oh, man, I've got a great idea to fix this, don't say it. Just pray for that person. Put your arm around them. Let them know that you're, the, the most important thing you can say sometimes when a person is despairing and despondent in pain and going through grief and heartache is to just put your arm around them or put your hand on their shoulder and say, I love you. I'm praying for you. Know that I'm going to Yahweh Sabaoth. I'm going to the God who fights for you. And I'm going to fight for you too. And that just is the most encouraging thing that we can do. And now we see her response. We see that Hannah has every reason to be angry over her desperate situation. She has every excuse to be jealous and to be eaten alive with envy. She has every justification to become resentful and bitterness. You know what bitterness is. You know what it is. Bitterness is the poison you concoct and plan for someone else that you drink. It's the poison you mean for someone else, and then you drink it. And so she is angry, and she is frustrated, and she's despairing, and she's resentful, but she doesn't allow the resentment to grow deep roots of bitterness in her heart. She has every excuse to do this, but she doesn't. Instead, she seeks God's presence. Verse 9, she went to the house. 
She went to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. What is she doing there? She is feasting. She is part of this temple feast. And what is she doing? She is about to leave the feast and go pray at the house. And this is the place in the Old Testament before the temple was built, Shiloh, where the tabernacle resided semi-permanently. And the house, the temple, the tabernacle is the place where God's manifest presence would be. And so when you came down to festival, this is the place where you encountered the presence of God. And for believers today, it's very different, isn't it? Because we don't go to temples to encounter the presence of God. The scripture says, as the gathered assembly, we are the temple. Because the Holy Spirit has now been poured out on all flesh, on all people, you and I are the walking, talking temples of the Lord. And her prayer is very personal, and it's very passionate, and it's kind of puzzling. The priest, Eli, thinks she's getting bombed after dinner. And she defends herself. And then what she does is she promises to the Lord. She makes a promise to the Lord. As a Christian, I usually read that, and I go, oh, praise the Lord, sister. Can you imagine making this promise to God? Taking your firstborn, that's Tyler for me, who's now 21. I can't, he was just the cutest little baby. <laughs> I just loved playing with him and tickling him. And I can't imagine, like, 18 months after we had him, just showing up and dropping him off at church and telling the pastors to raise him. Can you imagine? This is an ongoing heartache for her. She will not raise her child if she follows through on this vow. This is a world of hurt. But she goes down, and she is faithful to seek the presence of the Lord where the presence of the Lord is. She knows who her God is. She knows where her God is. And she prays through her grief and resentment. Don't miss this. Verses 15 and 16. Now, Eli, assuming she's hammered and just getting sloshed after dinner and is just being there incoherent, he barks out an insensitive word, and now she defends herself. Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or any beer, and I've been standing here pouring out my heart before the Lord, so don't think of me as some sinful, wicked person. I'm not. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and the depth of my resentment. So she actively prays through her grief and prays through her ang anger. Listen, the only way out of it is through it. And Hannah knows this. H Hannah knows that the way out is through. And so she has to pray. And she has to seek the Lord where the Lord can be found. And she prays through what? Her anger and her resentment. And that's the only way, folks, sometimes that we can allow, that we can, uh, we can keep our anger and our disappointment to become a root of bitterness, is to pray through it. And I have done this. And listen, if you haven't been around this turn in life, if you haven't been through this intersection yet, I can tell you right now, this is the way through it. The way out of it is through it. Now, it is possible to sin against God and others when we face anger, loss, and grief. I have sinned against God, and I have sinned against other people when I was angry and when I was experiencing despair. It's also possible to feel that and work through that and not sin against God or sin against others. Just because you're experiencing anger, the scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say that your anger is sin. We grieve with hope. 
We experience despondency and despair and heartache and heartbreak, and those things are not sinful. And what she wants to say to Eli is, I am not sinful because I'm working through my anger. I'm working through it, man. Listen, devotion to God doesn't mean the absence of anger, heartache, or resentment. It doesn't mean that. Now, as believers, you and I, I read this story, and my heart goes out to her in so many ways, but mainly in that the Holy Spirit has not been poured out on all flesh yet. But after the day of Pentecost, it has. Now, let me tell you a parallel passage in Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 26. I want to read it to you. Here's what Paul says the Holy Spirit's presence does in our lives. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses because we do not know what to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If, if you are God's elect and you have been called according to his purpose, you are the beloved of God and you love God and God is going to work all things out for your good. All things conspire together to work out for the good of the believer. And what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's a present transforming reality. He is representing us to God the Father. He is advocating for our case because he knows God's mind perfectly and he knows our desires and longings perfectly. And he can bring those two together. And so as believers, you and I, we have this presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our midst. Hannah finds herself in a desperate situation, barren in a cruel world, and yet she reminds us of a God who is Yahweh the warrior, the God who fights for us. And Hannah remains devoted to God. She prays through her grief with inexpressible words, the way the Spirit prays for us. Number three, Hannah delighted in God. Hannah delighted in God. So easy to fast forward to the victory in the story. Well, now we come to the victory. Well, the rest of the story is she has a little boy, and she names him what? Shemuel. And his name is a combination of two Hebrew words, Shema, which means to hear, and El, which means God. And she names him God Hears. He is a constant reminder that God hears your prayers. God has, is listening to your heart's desire. And so this little boy is a living testament to the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's grace and his mercy. And see her response in chapter two. So if you flip over to chapter two here, you'll see her response. Her worship is from the heart. And I love how Hebrews, do, Hebrews do, does this, right? So Jewish people in the Old Testament, what they would do is they would pack their theology in their poems. They would pack it in their poetry. And you can see this song that she sings doesn't get lost in history, becomes part of God's inspired record. It becomes part of God's inspired record, and it, is, it bursts out of her heart in joy. Verse 1, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now her heart is full of joy, and she experiences joy in real time because God has come through. And the word that she uses for celebration or the scripture uses for celebration here is the word alats. And it means to jump and leap for joy. 
to jump and leap with praise. And so her heart, this praise is just bursting out of her heart. Her joy is restored and her worship is informed. This, this young lady knows her Bible. She knows her scriptures. And so it, her song is based on the truth of scripture. Hannah's song becomes a theology lesson. She starts the song out about the greatness of God in, in verses two and three. It says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Who is eavesdropping on this prayer? Penina. (laughs) So she's like, girl, shut your mouth. I don't want to hear it anymore. God is faithful. God is good. And he is a God of knowledge. And so what does she affirm? She affirms the pillars of Old Testament theology about God. There is no other God. He's the only one. And he is a God of knowledge. He is a God of infinite, unfathomable knowledge and wisdom. And so her prayer begins on this foundation of just heartfelt, good theology. And then she speaks of a reversal of fortunes, which is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. Verses 7 and 8, it says, The Lord makes the poor, uh, makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. This, she has good theology, doesn't she? And she knows that, that God is really good at this. She knows her stories, and that oftentimes God will choose the person who is the least of these, and he will raise them up. This is God's pattern from the old to the new. And then she prophesies, probably unwittingly, but she prophesies about a future king, a future Messiah. Verse 10, it says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word anointed there is the word Mashiach. And we translate that as Messiah. In the New Testament, it comes through as the word Christos or Christ. And so she's prophesying about a day in which God is going to install his king over Israel. And this king is going to be his anointed son. Genesis chapter 17, she knew that God had promised Abraham that a line of kings would come from Abraham. Deuteronomy 17, 15, God told the people that he was going to install a future king over them of his own choosing. And now her son is going to be the son who anoints the future king of Israel. And so her song, once again, the song of Mary we read at the beginning of this message is the fulfillment of Hannah's answered prayer. It is the fulfillment of her longings. It is the fulfillment of Israel's dilemma at the end of the book of Judges that there is no king over the people and they do whatever they please, whatever seems right in their eyes. And this is the fulfillment in Luke chapter one. And lastly, Her worship sustained her. What will sustain you when circumstances change? What will sustain us when the circumstances aren't in our favor? God's presence, seeking his presence, and devoting herself to the Lord, and grounding herself in the truth of his word, kept her from falling into an incurable despair and bitterness. It sustained her when she was without any child, and it sustained her when God came through and answered her prayer. I'll end with this story. 
in his book, The Dance of Hope, William Frey tells the story about a young man whose name was John. And John was blind. And he was tutoring this blind young man uh, at the University of Colorado. And William asked him how he came to lose his sight. And the young man recalled an, an incident when he was a boy. It was an accident, and he suddenly lost his sight. And that accident was so traumatic that it took not only his sight, but also his sense of hope and his sense of joy from the world. And he told William, he said, I was bitter, and I was angry with God for letting it happen, and I took my anger out on everyone around me. He said, I felt because I had no, no sight that I couldn't do anything. And he said, so I just gave up. And I went into my room, and I never came out of my room unless uh, I came out to get a meal, and then I would find my way back to my room, and that's it. I was isolated, and I was angry at everyone around me. And so William asked John, he said, so how did you get in college? Like, how did you get into university? And it seems like your life has really turned around. He said, it has, and I, I credit my father. You see, his father recognized that it was time for John to move forward. It was time for John to learn that he could do more than just sit in his room and be bitter. And so he gave him what seemed to be an impossible task, to take the ladder from the garage and the storm windows to clean the windows and install all the storm windows all the way around the house. And in a very matter-of-fact fashion, his father told him, have it done before I get home from work. And he was infuriated. He lost it. He lashed out in anger and cursing under his breath. He found his way to the garage, and he went out, and he found the storm windows, and he knew where the tools were. So he found the stepladder and the tools, and, and he hauled them out there. And, and one by one, painful step after step, he began to install and clean all of these windows. And he thought to himself, they'll be sorry when I fall off this ladder and I break my neck, then they'll be sorry. Well, not only did he not fall, he finished the chore. And he felt really good about it. And that one chore helped John to realize that he could still work. And from that moment on, he began to rebuild his life and his identity. And as he finished the story, his blind eyes were filled with tears. And he told William, he said, I later discovered that at no time... During the day, had my father ever been more than a couple of feet away from me? He was holding the ladder, and he was standing behind me and waiting for me to fall to catch me. And so there are seasons in life, folks, where you may be asked, or God has placed you in a season of life where you feel like, I'm going through something I cannot do. I cannot do this. This is impossible. But you need to know, like Hannah knew, who your God is. He is Yahweh Sebaot. He is the God whom you cannot see, but he fights for you, and he is with you, and he has never left your side. The Spirit is always with you. And he is the key to your joy, regardless of what your circumstances say. And Jesus' brother, Jude, put it this way in verse 24. He said, Now to the one who is able to keep you from falling and to cause you to stand, rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence, that's the key. He is able to keep you. Lean into him. Hannah teaches us today that when circumstances drain the joy of, of life out of us, we can lean on the God who is there. We can lean on the God who has never left us in the midst of it because he sustains us and holds us up. Amen? I hope you believe that today. Let's pray. I'm going to have the worship team come back up.
you're here this morning and you may be in a situation in your life right now and you feel like this has just been too hard. It could be a physical ailment. It could be a wayward child or a grandchild. It could be anything. And you've thought to yourself, this is just too hard. Who can go through this? Who could, who could survive this? And I want you to know this morning, you can. You can get through it. And you can experience the joy of the Holy Spirit again. Because that joy comes from within. It comes from within. It's not something that's dependent on your situation. It comes from within you because the Holy Spirit is present within your heart and within your life to give you that joy. Will you just lean into the God who is there this morning? And Father in heaven, we do. And we can walk into this building and sing songs about the joy of the Lord the hope of Christ, the peace we feel in Christ, because you make all the difference. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.